Welcome to AZMCast, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCast is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ringdown, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. A 24-year-old female is brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. Uh, But before we get started, uh, we're going to meet our panel and give the listener a chance to put yourself in their shoes to think about how you would prepare for that case. So first we have Dr. Mike Russo, one of the third year uh, emergency medicine residents and chief resident at the university campus program here at the U of A. How you doing, Mike? Doing great. Glad to be on. Finally happy to be in the driver's seat of one of these podcasts. Uh, so next, uh, we have Dr. Patrick Mullet, uh, who is a uh, intern at the University of Arizona South Campus Emergency Medicine Program. Pat, you are a brave man for jumping on this podcast with us. Thanks for being here. Yes, sir. Happy to represent my intern class. I've uh, been listening since I was a med student, so I'm also stoked to be here. Awesome. Uh, and then last but not least, we have uh, from the EMPEDS program, we have Dr. John Campbell, who is halfway through his marathon program. John, I'm glad you still got something left in the tank to join on. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. L- long time listener, first time caller. Oh, man, this is getting embarrassing. <laughs> All right. So again, the ring down is a 24 year old female brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. So her vital signs when you uh, look at the EMS ring down is a temperature of 37.2, a heart rate of 119, a blood pressure of 126 over 92, respiratory rate of 30, and an O2 sat of 91% on room air. So, Pat, I'm going to start with you. What of that ring down kind of starts getting your uh, interest up that you need to go see this patient right away? Well, I've got a Tachypnic female who is uh, slightly hypoxic with a pretty fast heart rate. So <laughs> all three of those things are starting to get me to leave my chair and head over to the room. So what are you thinking about as you're walking over to the room, you're kind of getting yourself prepared for what's going to come in. What are you thinking might come through that door? So with a 24-year-old, I mean, one of the most common things would have to be asthma, um, which I think is why we're here today. Um, so I'm thinking acute asthma exacerbation right off the bat, but uh, other things in my differential would have to include anaphylaxis, uh, 
severe pneumonia. If this were to be a tall, thin guy, uh, spontaneous pneumothorax, maybe a pneumomediastinum. Just going real broad here, but I want to keep it broad since all I have is vital signs and an age. Yeah, I think it's important when you get one of these ring downs to really start thinking through what am I going to get instead of just kind of waiting there with a blank slate for the patient to come in. John, what were you going to say? I said I'd put add on to that like PE, you know, are they on birth control? Are they pregnant? Um, Another thing that's tachycardic, tachypnic and hypoxic. I think that's checking a lot of boxes for PE. Mike, you got anything else to add on? Yeah, I'm worried about the two of these guys. It's like they haven't practiced over the last year. No one's had COVID. <laughs> Have you learned nothing? Yeah, I haven't seen adults in a while. It's been it's been a little bit for me. <laughs> yeah, this is this is definitely worrisome for COVID nineteen. I'm going full face shield, full mask, gown, everything as well. This is one of those uh, rare entities. There's been this thing going on called COVID that we've all been a little worried about. So, Mike, thanks for bringing that in. All right. So I thought we were practicing as if this was normal, the normal world again. <laughs> Points for everybody just for showing up and for a pretty good broad differential. I mean, we do want to think of the other things that could be happening. You think of some of the rarities, something like a spontaneous pneumo, something like a, a, a PE, which is certainly possible in this case. And then COVID is going to unfortunately be one, two, and three. It's going to be COVID and asthma, COVID and pneumothorax or whatever else you end up having. So Mike, what are you, uh, what are you getting prepared? Pat kind of mentioned that he's getting his full face shield and his contact precautions. What are you doing to get prepared for the patient based on these vital signs? You getting all your airway stuff together and measuring out your tubes or are you just kind of asking RT to get some other stuff together? Yeah, I'm probably going to talk to my charge see what kind of rooms are available. If definitely having our nurses or RT find the elusive uh, end title uh, box that we can never seem to find in our emergency department um, and having it ready. Um, I'll definitely have RT on standby. You know, I think the presumptive uh, diagnosis given the age group uh, is, is appropriate. You know, maybe get some NEBS ready, some uh, steroids ready, some things of the like, just so it's there. Um, you know, Dr. Campbell mentioned uh, PEs on the differential, so it might be good to have an ultrasound at bedside to look at the heart, to look at the lungs. Um, I think it's one of those things, though, that given her age, you know, typically these people are healthy until we figure out more about their underlying medical problems. So you can kind of just see what the patient looks like first and get those materials secondarily uh, based on your initial um, suspicion and concern. One of the other things that I would highly recommend bringing with you, even though we probably don't use it much over the last year, is this uh, device called a stethoscope, um, which in COVID, it seems like it's just, well, they're breathing heavy. Let's just get the x-ray and not go near. Uh, But it's going to make a big difference. And uh, unfortunately, it's something that often kind of gets forgotten. Uh, You look around the room, does anyone have ears to put on this patient? And one person in the corner generally is like, you can take my stethoscope, but you have to rub it down with bleach for at least 30 minutes before you give it back to me. Um, So the patient does come in right now. Patient is sitting upright, breathing heavily with a nebulizer mask on. Um, So immediately when this patient comes in, Mike, you're going to start to institute some of your things that you kind of were getting prepared. Um, While you're doing that, John, what questions do you have for this patient who's got moderate to uh, probably moderate respiratory distress? Yeah. um, So I I would do, I know previously on this this show, you've had the Drummond's talked about it and I've kind of implemented it into my own uh, work since that time. But like 
thumbs up, thumbs down uh, for yes and no questions. I explain that to them. Um, and then I would, in talking to them, say, um, you know, do you have a history of asthma? Yes, no. Um, do you have chest pain? Yes, no. Um, have you ever had this before? Yes, no. Um, and kind of like quickly getting through a lot of the kind of history questions. Um, and, you know, if you do have asthma, did you use albuterol at home? Obviously getting the history from EMS. If they, you know, nowadays it seems like they're giving 0.3 epi and solumedrol and a bunch of doing ups before they even hit our door. And most times are fixed before, by the time we get in there. Um, but I definitely want to know what EMS did. Their point of care glucose. Um, are the interventions helping, right? If we've given three duonebs, how's the patient doing, right? Is she worse now than she was before we started? The same, better? I think, that, I mean, those are kind of be the big, big, big things I'd start with, right? Get like a big, big answers, obviously, while listening to lungs really quickly. So points up for uh, listening to the podcast and uh, <laughs> taking something from it. Points down for referencing Drummond as your reference. <laughs> uh, but, you know, overall. That's okay. I can live with that. <laughs> overall, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good assessment. And I like that you kind of prioritize some of that stuff. So points back, I guess you're doing pretty well on this. So um for uh, Pat, I'm going to ask you, if you have only three questions, you're going to ask this asthmatic who is speaking in broken phrases and doesn't really feel like talking a whole lot. What are the important questions that you're going to ask her in order to really get maximize your info? So one of the most important questions is, um, I guess, what could have caused this? Um, if there was something obvious, um, such as a allergen, if, if this is someone who is allergic to peanuts, for example, and they, you know, were exposed to peanuts a little bit ago, that definitely changes my diagnostic decision-making. Um, other questions are, are you taking your inhaler? If you're someone who uses glucocorticoids, are you using your glucocorticoids? Um, and another one I really like to ask, which I think goes for any sort of condition is, has this happened to you before and what happened last time? That's a great question. If someone comes in with chest pain, have you ever had a heart attack before? Yes. Does this feel like your previous heart attack? Now that you mention it, yes. Yeah, it's always <laughs> great to see, like, if you can just cheat and get to the end of the test before you actually get there. Mike, what about you? You got three questions you want to ask this person. What are the three most important questions you can think to ask? From, I mean, I know we're kind of assuming asthma here, but we got to get more of a history. I, I want to know the onset and some of the preceding things that led to this today. Was this a more insidious course um, or was it more acute? Um, was, you know, what was just the context be to, behind their shortness of breath? Um, I'd like to know uh, some of their other past medical history. Um, again, just keeping that differential broad. Um, do they have any other cardiopulmonary, other medical problems that this could be an exacerbation of or could, could be contributing to their shortness of breath? And then um, I think the one thing we haven't touched on that the other two have is um, kind of, you know, typically this happens with like an older population, but just kind of asking people what their wishes are, what, what their experience has been with this. Um, uh, what have they experienced in the past, such as intubation, uh, for example, because that's one thing we're always worried about with these patients um, and kind of get their, their uh, uh, 
perspective if they're able to, um, aside from those yes or no, thumbs up, thumbs down kind of questions that Dr. Campbell was alluding to. That's huge intubation. Yeah. Those uh, three questions became like eight questions pretty quickly, I feel like. But yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Have, have you been intubated in the ICU would be a, a high one that I would ask as well. Um, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> John sold you out on that one. Um, yeah, I think you know, yeah, I'm you not can, for keeps. You can start with your ample history, your allergies, meds, past medical history last known normal and what were the events leading up to this? I think you, uh, uh, I, I think there was a great discussion of kind of see what information you can get from EMS first, because EMS is used to giving these reports. And so if you got a patient that doesn't look like they can talk very much, like you can ask them, what's your name? And, you know, she says, Sarah, uh, but then can't say a whole lot else. Well, that's a lot of information right there. I'm going to talk to the paramedics and ask some questions while our nurses start to get stuff ready for you. And so you can ask EMS about what was going on. Uh, what meds did you give? Did you get a blood sugar? Did you get a 12 lead? You know, how did she respond to any of these things? Um, any changes in weird monitor rhythms or anything? You can get all that info from EMS, who's more uh, used to giving a presentation that's top down the way we do uh, with the most most important stuff first. Because you've all been in rooms where patients just start talking. You're like, can we get back to the reason why you're here today though? <laughs> and I think that's a great point. Like I would actually like the, like the glucose, for example, on this patient's vitals. Um, shortness of breath and kidney could be the presentation of DKA and a previously not known diabetic. Um, so it's really easy and oftentimes, you know, EMS crews are, are stressed, especially when they have sick patients, and they'll kind of anchor um, as even doctors are attendant, have tendencies to do um, and, sh you know, throw the asthma kitchen sink at these patients before they even get there. Um, and if they're responding and then the history suggests asthma, well, then that's great. They did, you know, started the workup for you. But if it doesn't suggest that or um, the patient's not getting well and you don't pick up on that and you allow yourself to be anchored as well, um, you know, you can take your patient down the wrong path. So uh, as we're kind of getting this history, we're throwing, as you said, the asthma kitchen sink at some of these patients. If they've got wheezing, they sound like they've got asthma. Um, so what are, the, what are the first interventions that you need? I mean, it's nice when we have an army of nurses and techs and medics and respiratory therapists. If you've only got one or two people who can help you out, what are you prioritizing them to do? What are, what are going to be your tasks that you're going to set? Um, I mean, I think big thing for me, right, is I don't know what interventions we've given already, but I would want a large bore IV, preferably two, but I, if they only have one, we only have one person, that's where I'd start. I'd throw duonebs um, right away, right? You want the albuterol in ipratropium um, right away and three doses for the um, Q20 minutes right at the beginning. Um, if while we're getting the IV, this looks like moderate to severe asthma, so I'd start throwing magnesium on there too, because that's been shown to possibly reduce some hospitalizations, um, definitely in kids. Um, you know, and if if I'm listening and this keeps being wheezing and it fits the asthma, right, I'm, I'm proceeding that way, right? If I'm listening and this is not fitting and I'm thinking more DKA or along the other ways, um, kind of what Russo was saying, point of care glucose I'd want to know, and EKG I'd want to know. Um, I mean, I'd Truthfully, in today's world, with those vital signs, we probably would be getting blood cultures as well <laughs> while we're poking this yeah. kid and or poking this adult. Um, 
and so I would, I would, I would do that as well. Um, and then I'm, I'm not leaving this room right away, right? I'm, I'm assessing how we're doing with the albuterol. Are you improving? Are you worsening? You know, are they speaking more? What's, what's changing? And I'd, I'd get a gasp to start as well. I think that's a really important part, uh, point that you made. You're not leaving the room. You're not barking out some orders. We're going to get this stuff and then let me know how it goes. Like you need to see if your initial interventions actually make a difference. Yeah. Aaron, I got I to gotta jump on John for a second. I mean, oh, no. I saw those points going up and, and he said something that's just basic. You know, IV, got it. Monitor, I didn't hear that. And O2. Oh, come on. <laughs> IV O2 monitor. This, this patient's hypoxic. I'd like to start yeah, him on a little bit of oxygen, see how they improve. You guys got to make <laughs> Matt Berkman proud with IV O2. <laughs> the mantra. <laughs> that's true. That's the, nur- the nurses that we have are so good that they do all that without us saying it. And, then so, and I agree with that. However, you may not always go to a place where the nurses are as good as our nurses. So sometimes you got to prioritize. This is especially true of new grad nurses, which happens. We go through cycles in the ER especially. It's a really tough place for our nurses a lot of times. They get asked to do a lot of stuff. And so we have turnover. And sometimes you get new grad nurses that don't have that same prioritization uh, that some of our nurses who have been around for a while have. So sometimes it is important to say, don't give the vancomycin first, give the ceftriaxone first, or don't give the insulin and glucose first for hyperkalemia, give the calcium first. Uh, Some of those things do need to be spelled out for new grads, but then there's plenty of the nurses that have been doing this long enough that they'll do it without you having to say much of anything. Yeah, I'd like to add on to a couple of things these guys said. Uh, So first of all, um, I think Mike mentioned that we're going to see if we have a negative pressure room available early on. Um, I think that was a great move. But, um, you know, the MDI is showing in a couple studies. I'd like to quote one, Idris et al., 1993, showing that an MDI is actually just as good as a nebulizer um, at preventing hospitalization and treating severe asthma attacks. So four to six puffs, Q, 20 minutes, um, or increase that to like eight puffs, Q, 20 minutes or less. Um, And having whoever's in the room help you with that, like at South Campus, we sometimes don't have that many people around and they'll just come in off the street, no EMS report. Uh, I'm giving the boyfriend or the, you know, caregiver that's with the patient, the albuterol inhaler, if I'm not able to be in that room in the next 20 minutes for some reason and instructing them on how to give that in case the nurse or someone else can't be there. I I would add to that. Probably one of the reasons that we do do an episode often though is because Combivent takes so long to get from pharmacy, which we've learned through COVID, right? Before a year ago, I never ordered Combivent in the emergency room. Now I've ordered it 20 times probably. And every time it takes way longer than you want it to. And like, yeah, you can give albuterol until you get it. But if you have something that looks sick, right, you want to get both. Yeah, pivot. We're waiting for that room because COVID has changed whether or not we can do nebulizers at all in a non-negative pressure room. All right. Great job, Pat. You bring the heat, man. You bring your own evidence. Maybe I can channel my inner drum in here. This is a simple diagnosis. (laughs) I know it was prefaced with asthma, but let's get a history. Let's get an exam. We're dropping down the treatment pathway before we even talk to our patient and figure out what's going on exactly. <laughs> Which is not uncommon. One thing I've learned in three years is to be patient and, and, and talk to your patients and you can get a lot of information that way too. 
I love that. So um, one thing I'm going to say is, you know, we mentioned uh, a lot of treatments. We'll give uh, John even said like, oh, we'll give Mag, you know, if she's in really severe distress. So your physical exam, like you're not going to be doing uh, checking for dystidokinesia on this patient. You're not going to be doing pupillary reflexes uh, per se. Like, you know, you're going to be assessing her respiratory status to figure out how sick she is. So uh, I'm going to each just give you, just pick one thing and that way you can all add on each other. But what's one thing you look for to determine how severe someone's respiratory distress is? Accessory muscles or respiration. If if their sternocleidomastoids flared out and I can see like intercostals when I change them from their shirt into a gown, like we all should be doing, uh, then I'm definitely concerned. Um, and I'm going to be listening on the lungs if I hear any wheezing. Um, I'm definitely thinking more asthma if they're like 60 years old with heart problems. I'm thinking CHF, but got to listen, use that stethoscope that you were talking about that someone has in the department and uh, make sure that you're looking at that. And shout out to Todd Alter, change the patient into a gown. Good job. <laughs> All right, John? Um, I, I think in, in peds, I probably do this different for adults and peds. Peds, I like accessory muscle, tracheal tugging, like all like taking the shirt off, right? And what do you see? Do you see the seesaw breathing, retraction, shoulder shrugging, tracheal tugging, whatever? Um, and adults, I think the one that I like the most is I, I like how much they can count. And I guess once they can get to count is a big one. And so someone who's kind of moderate, usually what I do is I say count to 10 at one point. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten just to see where they get. Um, and if they get to one, um, I'm very worried. If they get to six or seven, I'm still worried, but I think hopefully a little bit better. When I do my exams, I think it's, as we already kind of alluded to, it's easy to key in on asthma. So I'm doing the exam to try to convince myself that it's not. Um, I want to look at their skin and their perfusion. You know, are they cyanotic? Are they warm? Are they cool? Um, do I see urticaria or anything that might suggest uh, anaphylaxis? Is there peripheral edema? Is there JVD? Um, you know, and then overall, just kind of look at them at the doorway. Are they pale? Are they diaphoretic? Do they look fearful with air hunger? Uh, is their mental status um, off? Um, just something that, that attract me either towards uh, what is already just primary respiratory process that's acutely exacerbated and critical, or is there another process going on? Uh, that can steer me away from from being anchored. Great. All right, so let's move on from here. We've got uh, Mike Russo up in the lead with 14, John Campbell in second with 13, and Pat Mullet with 11. As it has been going back and forth, we're going to move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So I'll run through the history and physical real quick. So you have a 24-year-old female who is brought in by ambulance with a chief complaint of shortness of breath since this morning. She woke with wheezing that has progressed throughout the day. Uh, no help with albuterol and feels uh, similar to asthma exacerbations that she's had in the past. She's had no fevers, chest pain, or rash, and she just got over an asthma exacerbation last week and finished a course of steroids. Uh, past medical history is significant for asthma, and she was intubated at age 19 with multiple ICU stays before and after. She's on albuterol, uh, formidorol, betamethasone, uh, also known as Advair, 
Montelukast, also known as Singular, and an Epi auto-injector. Uh, she's got an allergy to penicillin and peanuts, and your review of systems is deferred because the patient is in a critical condition, which for those of you who love review of systems as much as I do, hmm. you, I don't know if you know this, but you can defer your review of systems in your chart as long as you note that the patient was too sick to get a review of systems. Just a little point there. So uh, vital, uh, vital signs temperature is 37.1. Heart rate is now higher at 127. Blood pressure is 152 over 99. And a respiratory rate is 38. We've got her on the 15 liters non uh, uh, 15 liters by nebulizer, and she's at 95%. She is ill appearing and in respiratory distress. She's diaphoretic. Uh, pupils are equal around reactive to light. Uh, cardiovascular, she's tachycardic with two plus pulses. And on respiratory exam, she's got an increased work of breathing. She's tripoding. Uh, she's got abdominal breathing. She's got faint wheeze in all lung fields and very poor air movement. Um, abdominal exam is benign as is her neuro and her musculoskeletal exam. So differential diagnosis for this patient. My differential for this uh, patient is going to be um, status asthmaticus, first and foremost, given her history, given her endorsed history, uh, and just kind of looking at her meds and things like that. Um, I think uh, anaphylaxis is potentially on the differential still, given that she has penicillins and peanuts. We didn't really get a, an exposure. She didn't really provide an exact um, trigger, but you can ask her that or, or just kind of keep on a differential. We might even use epi empirically in her treatment here, given how sick she sounds. Um, and then I would keep uh, PE on a on like a distant on a distant uh, uh, differential there, given her uh, tachycardia, her respiratory rate, and just her overall ill appearance. I think that's pretty good, um, John. You can just second that. But is there anything else that you want to add? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I probably would say asthma, asthma, asthma. <laughs> that history, <laughs> um, but uh, anaphylaxis, I think, is one I think about a lot, and I agree with Russo, right? Of like. PE, I think, is it doesn't fit the rest of our exam, but it's something if if we weren't getting better or something like that, I would maybe consider in the future. But all right, Pat, I think that was really comprehensive. The one thing that I would I would add is um, some esoteric stuff. Well, COVID nineteen, obviously, but you know maybe an epiglottitis or something like uh, tracheitis or something. I mean, it could be confusing this wheezing for Strider. That's pretty far out there, though. I think Mike nailed it. So now that we've kind of moved on, you got a good idea that this seems like asthma. She's got a history of asthma, as you alluded to earlier. Does this feel like your last asthma? It sure does. We're going to move forward with trying to do something for her. So John was already kind of shouting out a few things that we're going to try to help her out. Um, we're working on an IV, nurse is putting the patient on a monitor. Of all of those things that you want to give this patient, what's the first thing that's going to make, uh, that you want to give her that's going to make the biggest impact? I, I think I might, with how sick she looks, I, I would, I've never had to do this, but I've talked about it a lot. Like I am epi and I, I've talked to a lot of providers about this and maybe that's a little bold to go right out of the gate, but I've talked about how the albuterol, right? If you're so clamped down and you're so bronchoconstricted, right? You can't even get the albuterol in that then by giving a little bit of the IM epi, which if she's this sick appearing, then you kind of get a little bit of that um, bronchodilation, then the albuterol will help a little bit more. But 
I'll be shortly thereafter with albuterol and ipratropium. <laughs> Certainly worth drawing it up. Um, if RT is there, I think you can start getting her some meds. So do you give her albuterol first? you give her the ipratropium also? Mike, what are you going to go for? I'm giving her short-acting uh, beta agonist. I, I, I don't think we heard what EMS did in route. I know she was on the nebulizer and how much she received. But, uh, you got half of one of the nebs coming in. Yeah, so I'm, I'm probably just going to start her, actually, given how sick she looks, probably on just continuous um, albuterol right out the gate. Um, There's someone who needs it. It's the recommended first-line therapy. Um, and then following up quickly with uh, systemic glucocorticoids. Um I think uh, magnesium is something that's really uh, important to consider in this patient. Um, she definitely seems to be having a severe exacerbation. And if I'm going to follow in Pat's footsteps here, according to Blitz et al. in 2005, uh, magnesium itself has been shown to improve lung function in patients with severe exacerbations and also lead to decreased hospital admissions. Granted, this lady is given her clinical presentation is going to be admitted, but uh, uh, it might shorten her course, um, which, given her past history, is probably important to her, <laughs> uh, given her recent and extended hospital stays. I've always been surprised at how much you can turn asthmatics around, but uh, she's definitely not somebody that I'm eager to send home. But I'm sure going to throw everything at her to try to get her feeling better. Um, Pat, anything else you want to add? We've done uh, albuterol, ipratropium, magnesium. We've done steroids. Anything else to throw uh, I'm going to go way out in left field here. Um, but if we're thinking I am epi, we could also think I am terbutylene. Um, and, you know, way in the back, we could also think about high dose inhaled glucocorticoids or like racemic epinephrine inhaled. Excellent. Those are all kind of secondary adjuncts that I think are pretty good. Uh, for most asthmatics, the primary treatment is going to be some kind of bronchodilator, some kind of beta-2 agonist uh, that's going to uh, open up their lungs and get them to breathe. And then you've also got uh, the anticholinergic ipratropium uh, effects, is going to uh, the antimuscarinic that's going to kind of bronchodilate them further, but through a different pathway. Uh, steroids will kind of help to smooth that out that hopefully as the bronchodilators wear off, the steroids start to kick in and you get that decrease in inflammation. And the magnesium is uh, one other effect uh, that's going to help with that bronchodilation. Once you've kind of gotten to magnesium, which is almost your stage two, uh, then you're starting to get into the weeds of stuff that doesn't have a whole lot of evidence, but has a lot of uh, pharmacologic and pathophysiologic mechanisms uh, that seem to make sense. And you kind of have to play the person in front of you. That's stuff like Pat mentioned, like terbutaline. Uh, it's, uh, there's another one, aminophylline, which is an IV dose of theophylline. Uh, we're thinking about giving more epinephrine at that point. And I think John's point is very well taken that if you, this person has a history of anaphylaxis and they're not improving the way you want them to, that's how a lot of people will die in asthma is it was actually anaphylaxis. It wasn't asthma. And the treatment for anaphylaxis is definitely epi every time. All right. So for a couple of points, uh, what is the number needed to treat for giving someone continuous albuterol, like back to back to back to backs when they come in compared to just giving them one albuterol and we'll check on you in a little bit to see if you need another. Is that is we all going to be Google searching now? Or? <laughs> you can. <I'm, laughs> this is, this is bogus. I don't know, but I'm just going to go with my, my, my 
guess and go 10. 10 always seems like a good is number. correct. Yeah, for Dr. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, get out of here. <laughs> so the number needed to treat, according to Carmago et al., uh, for continuous albuterol versus intermittent uh, is 10. So if you just hit them really hard up front with beta agonists, you will be able to send one person out of 10 home uh, as opposed to just giving them a treatment and then you come back and, well, we'll give them another treatment. You know, you hit them really hard up front. Is that with or without a spacer on your MDI? Uh, so that was actually from nebulizer treatments. For uh, But tell me about spacers, Pat. Well, if you're using a spacer, um, as someone who had asthma when they were a kid, I was always told to use the spacer. It was beating my head early that, like, you can lose some of the uh, medication on the oral mucosa and if you actually have it in a spacer it's more likely to be delivered um more effectively to the lungs and not lost very true so you put it into the chamber and then you breathe it in as opposed to just spraying it against the back of your throat where it sticks there and you don't actually inhale it into your lungs all right uh so number needed to treat uh for ipitropriam if you give ipitropriam in addition to albuterol how many people do you need to treat to send one person home? Five. Six. Mike, you got a guess? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, given the points right now, I'm going to defer. <laughs> <laughs> Looks good up there. The answer is actually 11. Uh, so it's actually still pretty good, better than what you would think. And then uh, number needed to treat uh, for steroids. If you give steroids to somebody within the first hour of them coming to the emergency department, how many people do you need to treat to send one person home? Ooh, that's that's less. Eight. Less, yeah. Eight is correct, Dr. Campbell. Excellent job. Woo. So um, and then the last one is going to be magnesium. And magnesium, it's very important, really has no efficacy for mild asthma. But it does seem to be helpful for moderate to severe asthma. So how many patients do you need to treat with moderate uh, to severe asthma with magnesium to send one home? Like 25. Five. Three. Three? Oh, wow. Three. It is surprising. That's uh, based, on, based off of a Cochrane review uh, that uh, showed that if you – We'll treat uh, moderate to severe asthma with mag sulfate, uh, two grams over about 20 minutes, uh, that those patients will actually turn around uh, one out of every three. You can even prevent uh, hospitalization in conjunction with everything else that you're giving them. So thank and you for playing text, number needed to treat thing. guessing game. I would just add one thing. I'd probably just hang liter of fluids in this patient. She's yeah. otherwise healthy. You can probably tolerate it. She probably hasn't been having good PO intake. And while, you know, we're giving her a lot of medications, one of them being magnesium, and typically don't see side effects until you get into, you know, the six to eight to 12 gram range, but hypotension, changes in heart rate, um, these are all things that can happen. And uh, kind of like we always say, you know, it's just magnesium, uh, you know, what's the side effects? There's not really much downside, but there can be some side effects. So I think just kind of optimizing the patient entirely and trying to prevent, think about those adverse effects. Um, of some of our medications is probably a good idea. 
I think that's a great idea. Give them some fluids uh, because they're definitely dry from their uh, insensible losses uh, that uh, just from that respiratory distress, they can uh, appreciate a little extra fluids. Um, now we talked about steroids. Does it matter what kind, what route? I mean, it, it for her more so because of her respiratory depression, right? Like I, I don't, nothing's been shown PO versus IV to improve patients you know, like length of stay or hospitalization or length of diseases as, as much as I'm aware. Um, this is someone I'd probably would do uh, methylprednisolone just because you can dose it so often um, and they're so sick and IV. Um, but any of the, I would do IV, I think it's the biggest decision in this um, just because of a respiratory distress. All right. And then I'll ask, do you want any labs on this patient? Um, I'll, you can tell they, me what you would actually if, do and then tell me what you think is necessary. Well, in real life, we'd be ordering everything. What you actually need is probably, I mean, blood cultures with this just to make sure, right, like there's no sort of pneumonia or other bacterial trichitis, some other infectious thing going on as well. Something you'd start if you're going to give antibiotics, which I would. Um, but really a BMP is about as much as you truly need if you follow like all our asthma guidelines, definitely in pediatrics. What we really get is a CBC, but they talk about how that's going to increase our rate of giving antibiotics unnecessarily because everyone's going to have a, a, a left shift with um, um, leukocytosis just because of the epi, albuterol, everything we're giving. A BMP, the big things you're looking at are like your electrolytes. Your potassium is going to be low from all your um, stuff you're getting in. And I think your FOS is low too, um, so I check a FOS. Um, but we get a VBG as well. I would do that as well. Um, imaging, we're going to talk about price shortly, but it's going to be in the same boat. <laughs> what we do versus what we're recommended is two different answers. Yeah, I, I think the key here, Aaron, is that this, this patient looks ill, right? So I think if, if this was a more mild to moderate um, asthma, I think you could use, I know you hate this word, but you could use your clinical gestalt and kind of get a feel for how this patient is doing. And that will affect your, I'm going to say some science words, that'll affect your <laughs> probability. Right. You're going to look at this patient. You're going to uh, kind of get a, a gestalt for your pretest probability and how valuable these these labs and imaging will be. But this is a patient who looks ill. They're diaphoretic. They have abnormal vitals. They're tripoding. Um, it's it's important to kind of cast a wider net to make sure you're not missing something in this sick patient. Yeah. 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 Big question is how confident are you that this is only asthma and only yeah. asthma? Which Those are all good points. Go down. John alluded to getting the whole sepsis workup earlier, like the blood cultures and stuff. Um, so if you're doing that, just add a procalcitonin on here. See if you have a viral versus bacterial ammonia developing too. Controversy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the research well enough to, to question. I want to, yeah, I'm going to try to keep this, I'm going to try to keep no, this short great. so we won't wade into those waters. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the truth is, is this patient uh, meets SEPS, uh, meets SERS criteria with the hypoxia, with the tachycardia, but this is one where hopefully you can kind of use your, uh, use your clinical judgment and see the person in front of you and say, this is an asthma attack. This is not a patient who has sepsis. The same as you could say a person who had a seizure in front of you and has an elevated lactate. It's like, well, they're not septic. They had a seizure. That's why their lactate is 15. And now it's two. Um, well, I didn't do anything to them. They just got better. 
So uh, this is probably one where, yes, you might get dinged on a survey or something, but this is where your charting comes in to say, look, the patient in front of me sounded like asthma, looked like asthma, behaved like asthma, had no signs of infection, and so I didn't treat him with antibiotics. Um, because we still have to be good stewards of antibiotics, even though we know that we often can miss sepsis that presents insidiously uh, because they're not overwhelmingly sick. Yeah. Um, so John alluded to uh, imaging. Uh, so who's going to get a chest X-ray on this patient? I, I would I would watch right, and I think this is this is probably what I would do with the sepsis thing too. Is I while we're poking, I would get cultures just because drawing a bunch of labs and telling the nurses to go back in and draw cultures is a quick way to have every nurse hate you. Good expediency um, <laughs> and nursing rapport. Exactly. That's, that's what it's all about. Um, but for me, right, like it, there's, we were recommended if this is straight asthma and she gets better in a couple hours and is way better, I would not get a chest x-ray. However, like status asthmaticus and she's really, really sick, I, I would be inclined to likely get it. And I think at least in all the reviews I've read of, um, like asthma um, societies, if it's status asthmaticus and they're not getting better with interventions, a chest X-ray is can be indicated at that time because you want to be certain that you're treating the right thing. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll give the point to John. Gosh, man, that's um, definitely nice. <laughs> it's never happened before. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> I think. Um, I think. John's approach is, is a good start. Um, but again, I'm going to circle back to this is a really sick patient. Um, I would get a chest x-ray early on. It's likely asthma, but I want to make sure she doesn't have, you know, a a pneumothorax spontaneously from this. I know we heard faint lung sounds, but you know, your stethoscope is, is not as good as a chest x-ray, which is not as good as an ultrasound, which is not as good as a CT. Um, so helping yourself at the bedside is important. Um, she is significantly hypoxic. She's on 15 liters. She's breathing fast. Um, she's probably trying to compensate for some sort of VQ mismatch. So I want to see her lungs. I want to see what they look like. Um, maybe I just want to reassure myself, but um, I think it's important. Yeah, I think the patient in front of you being sick, you got to remember a lot of these guidelines are not written for sick asthma. And in fact, if you're sick, you will fall out of a lot of the guidelines. It's written for garden variety asthma that comes in some wheezing, some a little bit of respiratory distress. Most of those do not need an x-ray if they respond. And so I think both approaches that were presented are reasonable. You can get it right away because you say this patient's hypoxic and I want to make sure, and they look sick and I don't want to wait. Uh, it's better to just start checking stuff off my list. Or you can say, Hey, this lady says this, uh, it feels like asthma in the past. I'm going to hit her really hard and we'll see what happens. I think both of those are reasonable as long as you're willing to make an abrupt change when the patient makes an abrupt change. So uh, you get your blood work back. Uh, CBC shows a white count of 17.3. She's a little hemoconcentrated at uh, 14.8 and 42.3. Normal platelets, normal differential. Uh, Her BMP shows a little hyponatremia at 132 and some hypokalemia at 3.1. Uh, and a little bit of an AKI with a BUN of 19 and a creatinine of 1.7. Her glucose, when you got it as a finger stick, uh, was uh, 128. Now it's 159, uh, hopefully because of the steroids. And you got a blood gas, even though it wasn't asked. Some well-meaning attending put in the orders for you. I said blood gas. 
You did? Okay, great. So your blood gas comes back and you got a pH of 7.35, a PCO2 of 33, and a lactate of 4.6. So that lactate might, again, start to set off some alarms that maybe this patient is septic. But it's really important to remember that albuterol itself can cause a lactic acidosis, even though it's not a poor perfusion type lactic acidosis. It's actually stimulating that pathway through its beta activity. And the chest x-ray shows hyperexpanded lungs without infiltrate. And at the end of uh, the workup, uh, we've got Mike Russo in the lead at 32 and John Campbell at 26 with Pat at 16. And full disclosure, Pat has a shift in 10 minutes. And so Pat, (laughs) not only to hang uh, with uh, a group of great docs, uh, but to do it excellently and even to do it right up against the shift. So Pat, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We hope you have a great shift. Um, And I'm going to have Mike and John move on to the Dispo. During the Dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson-level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And, of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. All right. So Mike, uh, after your treatment, uh, the patient, uh, feels better and is off oxygen for a while. Uh, her work of breathing and air movement is improved, but she's still got polyphonic wheezing and her lungs sound like a haunted house. Um, and one hour later, she starts asking for another breathing treatment and doesn't feel like she can go home. Uh, she wants to be admitted, and so you call the hospitalist, and you let me know when you're ready. I am ready, Aaron. <clears throat> All right. Hi, this is Dr. Hospitalist. Hi there, Dr. Hospitalist. I have an admission for your team. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, down here in the ED, we have a, a sick uh, 24-year-old female with a history of asthma who presented with shortness of breath uh, with a concerning vitals and physical exam for status asthmaticus. Um, she was pretty tachycardic, uh, tachypnic, and hypoxic on presentation, um, was diaphoretic, really working to breathe. Um, we hit her up front with a lot of different medications, uh, albuterol, steroids, magnesium. Um, her workup was consistent with asthma. Her chest x-ray was negative. She had some mild hypokalemia, likely from all the albuterol. Her VBG was reassuring. um, And otherwise, her workup was normal. She did improve with our initial therapies, uh, but now on reevaluation has some return of her um, shortness of breath and wheezing um, and feels like she needs more treatments. She has a a tenuous history with her asthma. Uh, She's on multiple medications has had multiple ICU stays and has even been intubated at 19. Um, So this is a patient who, especially given her return of symptoms and her uh, subjective endorsement of of dyspnea, I think would benefit from staying in the hospital, Um, likely a a step-down unit um, given her prior history. I think she just needs close observation. Yeah, I agree. She doesn't sound like anybody that needs to go home, that should go home, but she sounds too sick for me. She sounds like she needs to go to the ICU, don't you think? I mean, you said she's sick and she's diaphoretic and 
Um, she's been intubated in the past and had ICU stays. I, I, I think maybe she should just go straight to the ICU. Yeah, I think uh, that's that's a reasonable uh, thought to have. Um, she's looking well at this time. Um, I if if she, if there's a, a step down unit that's available with nearby intensive support, um, I think that could be an appropriate place for her to be observed. Um, although she's going to need to be graduated beyond um, uh, intermittent dosing of albuterol to and keep on continuous, um, I think an ICU is a, is a reasonable disposition for her given her uh, her prior history. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got our step down, but usually we prefer to have the patient step down from the ICU instead of going to step down and then having to step up and worsen. Um, do you, uh, when was her last treatment? Her last treatment was, uh, about an hour ago. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, what if I come down and listen to her? And if she sounds rough, then she'll go to the ICU. But if uh, she sounds uh, like she's doing okay, then I'll just take her to the floor and give her treatments frequently. And we'll just keep an eye on her there. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, yeah I, I think when she presented, she was definitely looking uh, way worse than she is now. Uh, if you want to come down, lay some eyes on her and we can make a, a game plan together um, with whatever you feel comfortable with the resources you have at hand. Okay. All right. That sounds reasonable. All right, John. So you're up. Uh, so after your treatment, uh, the patient has much improved work of breathing. Uh, you gave her that epi right up front and she started moving some air. She's off oxygen and she's been watched for a couple hours now and she's still wheezing, but she says, I feel so much better. I know what it, it means when I need to go to the ICU. Uh, but otherwise, I really hate staying in the hospital. I really want to go home. Uh, so why don't you run through your discharge instructions uh, for this patient, return precautions, what you're going to do for her to give her a safe dispo. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're feeling so much better. Um, I think, you know, obviously I would have some group decision making in terms of how sick I think she looks versus how sick she says she is, right? And uh, totally understandable. You have asthma, you're in and out of the hospital, you want to spend every moment outside of the hospital possible. Um, that's fine with me. Um, good question I'd have for you is who, who do you live with? Who's at home with you? Do you have friends? Do you have roommates? Do you live with your family members? Yeah, I live with my husband at home. Um, and we're, he's working from home right now. So he's home at all times. Perfect. And he, he feels pretty comfortable looking after you and you guys can. Uh, yeah, we've been married for the last five years. Uh, and he was actually, we got married right after I got out of the ICU from being intubated one time. So. Oh, good, good guy. <laughs> Not good to have. Um, so yeah, I mean, big things for me, right? And I'm sure we've hit you on this um, repeatedly, right? Is I want, I want you to keep track of how often you're using your albuterol inhaler. I want you and your husband to kind of discuss how your work of breathing is going, how your chest tightness, if you have a cough going on, if that's improving. Um, I want to see you using it about every four hours at the most. If you're using it more than that, I want you to come back here to the emergency room. Um, if you're not able to speak in complete sentences, if you ever says anything about your color looking off, if you start working harder to breathe at any moment, you, you're coming right back here to the emergency room. Um, when, do you think you'd be able to get follow-up? I'm not sure what day it is. If it's you know early in the week, maybe later this week, you know, here in a couple of days, have someone check in on you. Like a pulmonologist or a primary care. Yeah, yeah, I've got I've got a pretty good uh, primary doc who I'm sure could see me. 
Um, it's Monday, Doc. You must be working really hard. You can't remember what day it is. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, I've got a doc. I can I can call her, and she's usually pretty good of getting me in within a day or two, so that I don't end up in the hospital. Yeah, um, and have you ever seen a pulmonologist before? Uh, it's been a long time, but uh, my primary doc usually keeps up with me on stuff. But uh, yeah, I could ask her about that, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that'd be a good discussion for you guys to have with you having so many, I don't know how many ED visits you've had this year, but you've had multiple ICU stays. It might be worth kind of checking in and making sure you're getting PFTs every once in a while, making sure we've really um, gotten you on your best home home regimen. Um, that, that's kind of the big step. Do you, do you feel comfortable with all that? Do you have questions about anything we brought up? or? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I feel pretty good about it, but um, are you going to give me anything to go home with, uh, or is it just on my steroids I, I gave you when I when you walked in the door? Did I give oh, you okay. methylprednisolone, or did I give you dexamethasone? What, what did I choose at that time? Uh, uh, I think you gave me the the uh, saw you saw something saw you saw you medrol. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll, I'll write you a script here um, for some, some twice a day um, steroid dosing. So take one in the morning and one at night. I'll, I'll do prednisone um, just here for five days. Um, okay. So kind of quicker acting one. Um, so I'll make sure you have that prescription. You have enough albuterol inhalers at home? Yeah, yeah, I've got plenty. Okay, and you have your controller medication. You don't need any refills on that? No, I should have enough. Uh, I've got the Advair, I've got the Singular, uh, I've got my EpiPen. I mean, I've got all of that. So, um, and and I'll see my doctor in a couple of days. I certainly have plenty to get there. Perfect. All right. Yeah, I think that seems all good to me. Um, so I'll make sure you have that prescription. Uh, make sure you fill that up and are taking it appropriately. Um, yeah. Nice awesome. You. Glad you're feeling better. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate all your work. So. Yeah. Finally, somebody does. <laughs> Would you prescribe somebody like a one dose of Dex or something like that at that point? Like I've, I've, I've never had this situation. I've always given Dex up front. Yeah. So uh, one of the important things with Dex is that uh, dexamethasone is non-inferior to three days of prednisone. Yeah. Which makes sense because Dex lasts for 36 to 72 hours. But depending on how sick someone is, when their last round of steroids were, um, you know, all of that, like, I'm probably going to give somebody more, like, I'm probably going to give someone at least five days of steroids if they were this sick, maybe seven. And then if she was just on steroids last week, I might even do a taper for her. So oh, yeah. a single dose of Dex is great, but it's only the same as giving three doses of Pred, you know, three days yeah. worth of pred. And so somebody this that was, you know, had this big of an exacerbation, I probably wouldn't just rely on the decks. I'd probably just pile some more steroids on top of it, honestly. Yeah. I forgot she was on steroids the week before. Yeah. Dang it. It's the, the small details. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, excellent job, both of you. Uh, Mike did a great job uh, of uh, kind of starting with the oversell, but then reining it in uh, to say this is a good patient uh, that would be appropriate for a step-down unit, uh, kind of uh, working with the hospitalist. So, Mike, I'm going to give you the victory for this one, uh, but excellent job, John, with your return precautions and discussing with the patient as well. Even though you didn't seem to be all that comfortable with her going home, she's leaving, so she's yeah. out of <laughs> uh, so, Mike, congrats. You're to move on to the art of medicine, and uh, the soapbox is yours, my friend. Oh, wow. I, 
This is the greatest moment of my life. It <laughs> <laughs> is terrifying. <laughs> no, thank you so much, uh, Aaron. I, I think um, the thing that's most been on my mind really is just kind of the end of my residency approaching. It, it's coming fast um, and it'll be here before I know it. I, I know the the sun has, hasn't quite set yet. I'm, I haven't ridden off into the sunset here, but it's coming quick. Um, so I guess I just wanted to give a quick shout out to all the uh, attendings and, and co-residents that I've had a chance to work with who have really taught me the art of medicine. Uh, I've learned more from all of you than I've probably taught. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, and then finally, just a big shout out to, to all the residents, especially our interns and our juniors who have been pushing through a really difficult year um, as we hopefully approach the twilight of COVID. Um, it's been an atypical year for us. Um, it's it stressed us in and out of the hospital, um, has really kind of detracted from some of the 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 light and the and the positive aspects of residency, um, such as like social events and just camaraderie and and things of that nature. Um, so I would just say to everyone listening, uh, keep listening because it's a valuable podcast. Keep podcasting <laughs> in general, um, but also, you know, keep keep pushing on. Uh, it'll get better. And uh, uh, yeah, that's that's my that's my art. I could I could go on here about, you know, climbing and all these other yeah. things. But you you, limit, you <laughs> limited to healthcare related, medicine related topics. So oh, I, uh, I appreciate it, Mike. It's your attention to detail and your willingness to suck up. Uh, that's why you won. So we really appreciate <laughs> you shouting out the podcast on the podcast. But uh, thank you guys for uh, playing this week. I hope you had fun and uh, we will talk to everybody next month. Thanks. Thanks.